Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. My name is Jeremy. I am one of the pastors here. I'm delighted uh, to be speaking to you this evening on the whole subject of spiritual battle, looking at Ephesians uh, chapter 6. So if you have a church Bible, you want to turn to page 1708. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And there's really two things that I think are, are, are kind of important about this passage uh, of why we're looking at it. One is because this passage introduces you to a whole different way of seeing life. Kind of, it talks about an unseen spiritual battle, um, and kind of the, between good and evil, and, and a whole new kind of new lens on life. And so we're going to have an insight into that. And some of you, that will be totally new, and you might be kind of skeptical, but I want to convince you that that is the reality. The second reason I think this is essential is because, in many ways, this whole passage, we're going to be looking at kind of what it means to put on the armor of God, is really a foundational passage of what it means to live the Christian life. And actually, we're going to see that these are uh, kind of some of the most foundational building blocks of what it means to be a Christian and how to live um, in a broken world under the influence of evil. So if you turn with me, uh, page 1708, I'm going to read to you from verses 10 to 20. Today I'm going to mostly focus our, um, kind of my reflections, our sermon, on verse 10 to 13, and then maybe uh, the next time I come to speak, which will be the beginning of May, um, I'll continue on and we'll look at the other verses. So, the whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, praying for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Lord, would you give me words to to say? Would you help me to unpack this passage Would you help us to understand this unseen spiritual reality? Would you help us to see maybe what we haven't seen before? Would you help us to engage with the reality of Satan and all that might come from that? Would you help us to put on this armor? Would you help us to be prepared for the Christian life, for the battle that is ahead of us? We know that we can only do this by your spirit, Lord. So would you come and uh, speak to us? Come and open up our eyes to your uh, riches, to your goodness, and to your truth. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Paul is setting out for us, really, this whole idea of of Satan, of a spiritual battle, and of putting on the armor of God. And I think, I want to give you a few reasons before we dig into the passage of why I think it's important we look at this passage. 
First of all, there's actually a huge amount of wrong thinking about this subject. And what I mean by that is, for some of you, the idea of the devil feels utterly uh, medieval. It feels outdated, feels irrelevant. Surely, you might be thinking, surely no one believes in Satan in 2019. And I think part of the reason for that is because we've seen a proliferation of different depictions in art, in movies, in TV, um, all around the the person of Satan. So you're more likely to think of, you know, uh, wacky things like people's head being kind of totally twisted around or or weird scenes of demonic possession. You're you're more likely to think of that uh, when you think about uh, the question of the devil or Satan than any kind of reality. These are more pictures of ridicule or fantasy than reality. And so it's very difficult then to take this topic seriously. What I want to encourage you this evening that we almost, what I want to do is try and leave aside some of those bastardized ideas of who Satan is and come back to what the Bible has to say about this subject. What does the Bible have to say about Satan and evil and try and disentangle the, the, the biblical reality from the kind of depictions that we've seen in our culture? So that's the first reason I think we need to look at this. Second of all, I think it's because as Christians, we tend to ignore this idea of spiritual battle. We tend to ignore the existence of the devil. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer from the 20th century, uh, talked about um, two dangers that, that, that we can fall into on this subject. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our own race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist, so one who denies their existence, and a magician, one who kind of obsesses about their existence with the same delight. And I think about our context, think about what it means to be a Christian in London in 2019. I'd suggest that most of us are more like materialists than magicians. Many Christians are what I would call functional materialists. We might accept the existence of Satan or this idea of a spiritual, an unseen spiritual battle, but in reality, it makes no difference to our lives. We've accepted or imbibed some of the secular and materialist assumptions that come with our age and with our culture. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to go to the other extreme, that we need to start seeing Satan around every corner, um, you know, you can kind of meet those people who anything that happens, anything, any bad thing that happens to them, it's Satan. You know, you failed that exam, oh, Satan must have left. Maybe you just didn't prepare for the exam. Or, <laughs> I, mean, I failed my driving test. No, no, maybe you just need to get better at driving. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we need, kind of need to, uh, to go to the other extreme, but we need to give this subject attention because it's a biblical subject. Recently, I spent some time studying this passage um, for another purpose. And as I was doing that, I just more and more saw a profound gulf between what Paul is describing here and the way we as Christians think and talk about Satan and unseen spirituality uh, today. And so I want to, and that's, that's almost precisely the reason why Paul is writing to these Ephesians. He's just given them a whole list of instructions about how to live as a Christian. He's saying, look, Whilst I give you all of these kind of practical instructions, don't forget this unseen spiritual reality, that you're in a spiritual battle. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of that, partly because he wants them to be prepared for that battle. He's kind of saying, look, don't forget, don't ignore this spiritual battle. You need to be prepared. You need to put on your armor. And that's what I I want to set out for you this evening. But the third reason I think it's important that we look at this is because I think it taps into um, one way of understanding the Christian life. And that is that the Christian life is a struggle. Paul is using the language of battle here. 
He's saying, put on the whole armor of God, like a, a soldier, a kind of rallying cry. Be prepared for the battle. He also says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers. And he goes on to, um, which I'll come on to in a moment. That word wrestling is fascinating. It's not uh, kind of wrestling. Some of you, maybe Americans, or I don't know if this is true in South Africa as well, you had wrestling as a kind of high school activity. We Brits, we didn't really have that, did we? Um, but uh, maybe you're, you're sad about that fact. But he's not talking about uh, the kind of wrestling of a high school gymnasium. He's talking about the kind of hand-to-hand combat of a soldier, kind of fighting for his life, like uh, kind of desperate to, um, to, to win a battle which is absolutely... Uh, close to him. And what he's saying really is that in a sense, this is a picture of the Christian life. It's a wrestle. It's a struggle. And what this speaks to is the fact that sometimes you hear in Christian circles the idea that the Christian life is kind of an absolute joy. And almost like if you're finding anything hard, then you're doing something wrong. You know, you maybe meet those Christians sometimes who kind of permanent smiles. If you ask them how they are, I'm blessed. You know, (laughs) anything that's going on, I'm blessed. Like there's a kind of denial of the reality of life and the fact that sometimes things are difficult. And actually, this is what Paul's tapping into here. You know, Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples in John's gospel in chapter 16, says, in this life, you will have trouble. And Paul is giving us an insight into that trouble this evening. Crucially, he's showing us how to survive and thrive in the midst of that battle, in the midst of that struggle. This whole idea of armor is kind of showing you what are the resources that you have in order, uh, what are the resources that you have to navigate and to um, endure through the struggle of the Christian life how to survive against the forces of evil in this world. And actually, also, we'd add to that the temptation that we experience and, and, and everything else. This, of course, will feel particularly relevant to you if you right now feel like you're in that kind of battle, that maybe that you feel um, assay, assaulted on a number of different sides, and maybe even those of you who feel like you can't go on. But actually, I want to suggest this is also uh, much more normal and less wacky than some people might assume. Paul is describing here really the everyday tools for life, remembering the Christian truth, holding on to the gospel, receiving your salvation, and kind of uh, really hanging on to that truth. And this is the essential building blocks of the Christian life. So it's the key for all of us on how to survive and thrive in a broken world which is influenced by evil. That's why I think we need to look at this passage. So then, well, let's say, what is Paul saying to us then? I'm going to give you three big ideas that Paul's giving us here, particularly in the first three verses, uh, verse 10 to 13. First of all, verses, sorry. First of all, he's giving us the idea that the battle is real. And he's saying it's a battle for your mind. And then finally, he's giving us an instruction to put on your armor. The battle is real. It's a battle for your mind. So put on your armor. So first of all, the battle is real. Paul is absolutely unequivocal here in this passage that the devil is real, that he is the ultimate enemy of the Christian life, and the devil and his evil spiritual forces. He is absolutely intentional here to underscore the reality of their existence. That's why he's encouraging them to put on this spiritual armor. In verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, he goes into more detail, describing these demonic forces that accompany the devil. He says, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As you hear this, and you hear Paul's kind of um, 
just natural description of these forces, of demonic forces, there may be some of you here who just think this whole idea is ridiculous. How can you believe in Satan and demonic forces? I want to give you a few reasons to caution your skepticism. First of all, I want to suggest it's actually very narrow-minded to assume there's no um, such thing as the spiritual realm. That's, of course, it almost becomes, it's almost natural. It's the natural assumption to you. If you've grown up in the secular West, we have what's called materialism. We believe that basically the only thing you can experience, the only thing that exists is that which you can perceive with your five senses. But actually, that's not the assumption of most of the world today. Think about large parts of Asia, of Africa, of Latin America. Actually, they start with a very vibrant um, belief and expectation in the spiritual realm. Of course, it's not constrained to uh, people who might subscribe to Christianity. Actually, this is the kind of assumption of many different worldviews, many different uh, people of different beliefs across the planet. So I might just caution that standard assumption that comes from just having grown up in the secular West. Second of all, I find this absolutely fascinating. Um, there's the whole idea presented to me by, um, um, first by uh, Tim Keller, but then um, reading the book that he got this idea from, a man called Andrew Del Banco. as uh, a secular liberal commentator of Jewish extraction. Um, makes a really compelling case in a book called The Death of Satan. And in this book, he basically outlines the kind of history in America of how um, this idea of Satan or the devil has kind of slowly diminished in American culture over the last 200 years. And what's fascinating is he, as a, as a totally, a man, I imagine, doesn't really believe in this in any way, um, he articulates that actually with the death of Satan in popular consciousness in culture in America, and I think this is the same here, Actually, we have far less capacity to be able to understand and articulate the, um, the whole question of evil. What he means by that is, um, today, when we think about people doing wrong things in the world, we typically think um, about, kind of, we have a behaviorist lens. So we think the reason why someone's done something is maybe uh, bad parenting, maybe uh, kind of bad psychology, maybe, you know, think, well, maybe he had a bad, he wasn't loved as a child, maybe... Uh, kind of just never learnt to control his anger. We kind of think of people making these bad choices because of something in their upbringing or something in their psychology. But the question is, how do you make sense of the greatest human evil? Think about questions of genocide. Think about questions of profound child abuse. Can you really just kind of boil those down to kind of simple character flaws or, or quirks in humanity? He's saying there's actually a gap in the secular account of evil which can't make sense of the greatest and most profound instances of human evil. And uh, in a sense, he's saying we've trivialized evil and we can't explain the greatest types of moral evil. And he gives a quote from um, Anthony Hopkins' character Hannibal Lecter um, in in the film The Silence of the Lambs. He's speaking to a woman from behind his uh, kind of cage or, or something. I'm not, I haven't actually seen the film, but the quote is <laughs> profound. Um, <laughs> we've all seen the, the, the image with the, with the mask. Um, this is what he says, um, kind of challenging this idea of, of the behaviorist lens. He's speaking to a kind of a woman in front of him. I think she represents some kind of authority. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Can you stand to say I'm evil? He's saying we, we don't have the language, we don't have the way from a secular perspective to really understand the most profound evil in our culture and in our history. 
And I think there's one final idea which I want to present to you, which is just for all our secular materialist assumptions, uh, actually there's a nagging sense in many people that the materialist worldview is not all there is. In March, an article on the BBC website came out entitled, Why Are Some Millennials Turning to the Supernatural? And it described an explosion of interest in all sorts of different activities and practices which fall under that kind of label, spiritual but not religious. Think about, uh, you know, the article was going through people, uh, a renewed interest in seances and communicating with the dead, with tarot cards, with uh, healing crystals. Apparently, the, the, the global healing crystals industry is worth over a billion pounds. People are spending a billion pounds on this stuff. New online magazines about witchcraft, all sorts of different spiritual phenomenon. Now, whether you think those things are true and have any basis in reality, what's fascinating is that in our secular age, that actually there's a growing proportion of people who say, this can't be all there is. Actually, there must be something beyond this life, and there must be some kind of spiritual realm. So just purely from a skeptical perspective, if you're not a believer, I think there's, there's good reason to caution your skepticism in this area. But I think the ultimate reason here, if we're thinking about this from a Christian perspective, is simply if you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in Satan. The person who speaks most about Satan in the New Testament is Jesus. In John 17, Jesus prays the Father, asking him to pr- protect his new, uh, this, this new church, these early Christians, from Satan's influence. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for their protection from Satan. That's one of his prayers for them. That means he says he takes account of this threat to this, this early church. Elsewhere, Jesus casts out demons, even ascribes people's unbelief in him to Satan's influence. Jesus takes Satan's existence and influence for granted. What this says to you is if you're a skeptic here, if you're not a Christian, really what you have to start with is the question of who is Jesus? That's the question that in many ways is always the place to start when you're looking at the Christian faith. When you see this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, was he just a human teacher? Was he a scoundrel who claimed to be God but um, actually wasn't God? Or was he actually who he said he is? Was he God in the flesh? And I think if you look at this purely from a rational, historical perspective, you look at the, the way that the disciples were transformed after his resurrection, the way that uh, hundreds claimed to see him after he was resurrected, if you look at the way the early church exploded despite the opposition that was under, uh, against them in the Roman Empire, when you think about that, actually the most logical, rational conclusion I think that you should come to is that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was God in the flesh. And if it's true that he is indeed God in the flesh, then you have to take him seriously on this whole question of who Satan is and whether the very existence of this figure, this force or uh, person of evil. So then, of course, when we think about then Satan, if we're willing to accept his existence, then we have to say, well, what, let's separate myth from reality. We're not talking about a man with red horns and a red hot poker. What is Paul saying here about Satan? And really, actually, what he's saying here is much simpler than most people uh, realize. He's saying that simply that Satan is evil and he's powerful. In verse 12, he describes um, these demonic powers under Satan as the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now, darkness is always a picture in the Bible talking about evil. Later on, he talks about them as the spiritual forces of evil. The good thing you want to understand is that the description that Paul is giving is also one of significant power. Paul is almost saying, don't underestimate Satan. I don't think he wants us to be scared of him in any way, but neither does he want us to underestimate him and ignore him. 
these powers over this present darkness. The language here is, is kind of speaking of a, a language of, of almost worldwide influence. And you know, earlier in Ephesians, he talks about all those who aren't following Christ are following the course of the air, following the prince of the power of the air. It's in some ways saying, actually, Satan is at work influencing the world that we live in. Almost a picture of a cosmic bureaucracy, a legion of demons and evil spiritual forces with worldwide influence and authority, spreading evil and destruction. Now, to be clear, he's not saying he's equal to God. The Bible suggests that Satan is a fallen angel who's jealous of God and actually is almost desiring his authority and is opposed to God's rule. And the Bible is clear that God is the ever-present ruler of the universe. Satan is like an upstart, an interloper. And obviously we know as Christians that Satan has been defeated on the cross and that one day when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, that Satan's influence in, his, in God's kingdom on this earth will be utterly destroyed. But we live in something of an in-between time that, as, uh, that, that today Satan is seeking to destroy God's work in the world and undermine God's purposes, which includes attacking and seeking to destroy God's people. And so the first implication from all of this is you've got to hear loudly and clearly from Paul, wake up. Paul's saying, don't ignore this spiritual battle. Many of us are apathetic about this spiritual battle, almost ignoring its existence. It's an unseen spiritual battle. So it's natural in some sense that you would ignore it. It's a bit like, um, you know, you can imagine one of those films of kind of medieval uh, castles, that kind of thing. You've got a group of people enjoying uh, uh, their time in the castle, you know, having good wine, eating good food. And what they don't realize is there's an army heading for that castle about to put them under siege. And it's a picture of how we can almost just absentmindedly forget this spiritual battle. The danger is that Christians are so focused on our life plans and all the important things that I'm not saying are wrong in any way, but we ignore the unseen spiritual reality. What Paul is saying really here is that you as a Christian are involved in this spiritual battle, whether you like it or not, both personally and corporately. It means personally you're in the battle. You have an enemy who is seeking to destroy you. In 1 Peter, he uses the language of a roaring lion looking to devour you, saying, get ready for the fight. Know his schemes. Be prepared. Saying, look, in a sense, the spiritual battle is not some add-on for super spiritual Christians. It's saying, actually, the spiritual battle is for all of us. One Christian leader put it like this. The Christian life is not like a battle. It is a battle. We even go further than just the enemy that Paul's describing here and say, actually, as Christians, we have three enemies. We have the flesh, the enemy within, the desires of our hearts that don't follow um, God's purposes. We have the enemy from without, Satan, and we even have the world in some way. The the culture that we live in, of course, is not a Christian culture, and therefore it's going to have all sorts of ways that it's going to maybe distract us or, or take us away from God's purposes. But it also, I think there's something of a corporate battle that we're in as well. Rather than just thinking about this defensively, we also have to think about this offensively. And what I mean by that is, when you ask yourself, what is God's answer? What is God's vehicle for this spiritual battle? I'm convinced, actually, it's the church. You think, what is God's antidote to the influence of of Satan and evil and destruction in this world? Actually, it's the church. That the church has a role in pushing back the frontiers of darkness. As we share the gospel, as people come into uh, God's kingdom, as they uh, come out of the dominion of darkness and come into the family of God, as we see lives transformed, in some way we are extending the kingdom of God and pushing back Satan's influence on this world. 
Actually, rather than just seeing this defensively, Christians need to see this offensively and saying that this is the mission of the church, that as we spread the gospel and see lives change, in some way we are engaged in this spiritual battle. What an absolute tragedy then that Christians would disengage from this battle. It'd almost be like you're not even turning up to the battlefield. You're just letting Satan uh, influence and, and kind of uh, the imp- we're forgetting in a way that we live in a broken world that is influenced by evil. I think many of us can just get in the routines of our normal life and kind of hunker down, just focus on the things in front of us without realizing, without forgetting that actually we live in a broken world which is under the influence of evil. And see that tragedy, that actually that's something that we're called to respond to, that we are in some way God's answer to that problem. So we're both personally and corporately involved in this battle. But actually, I also think this means that some of us are focused on the wrong enemy. We live in the era that some sociologists have called political religion. And what it means by that is there are, there are um, on the right and the left, new extremist political voices, or maybe not extremist, depending on your perspective, um, but the uh, new voices uh, emerging. And what they typically see, and I think this is true, I see this on social media as well, um, that we see the, enem- the, the other side as our enemy. You know, the, the biggest problem in society, if you're on the right, is the left. And if you're on the left, the biggest problem is the right. And, um, and you see those kind of Twitter wars, expl- uh, play, see that played out on social media all the time. And I think that attitude then can affect the church. So depending on your view of life, actually you end up thinking that the greatest enemy of Christianity in this world is either kind of capitalism and greed and, and big business and kind of selfish interests in that sense, or you end up thinking it's kind of the liberal media and all the forces of, of, of liberalism and everything else like that. And actually what Paul's saying here is that's, they're not your enemy. Like you're not, maybe, that's not to say there isn't human evil, and it's not even to say that we as Christians shouldn't oppose human evil. Think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor in Nazi Germany who opposed that regime and even lost his life for opposing the Nazi regime. So it's not saying that we shouldn't oppose human evil, but if we only see the enemy as, the, as other people, then we're missing something. Actually, that doesn't take account of the human evil within each of us, and it doesn't take account of the spiritual force of evil in the world. So some of us are looking at the wrong enemy. But if we're to fight in this battle, if we're to take Paul's instructions seriously here, we need to understand the schemes of the enemy. Paul in 2 Corinthians says he desires that the Christians would not be ignorant of his designs, for they risk being outwitted by Satan. So we need to understand when it talks about in verse 11 of Satan's schemes, you have to understand, well, what are his schemes? And maybe at this point, if you've been skeptical, I think even if you... I'm not quite with me so far. As I describe them, I think actually many of this will match up to your experience. Because if you look at Satan's influence in the Bible, it talks about a number of different ways that Satan might influence the world, even puts him sometimes behind, attributes him behind physical sickness. But primarily for the believer, the personal battle is the battle for the mind. That brings me on to the second point. The battle is for the mind. Satan is seeking to influence and destroy Christians by his lies. And you've got to remember that the nature of who Satan is, that he is a liar. Uh, the, the word diabolos uh, here means slanderer, means false accuser, means deceiver. In John 8, John 8, he's described as the father of lies. Elsewhere, he's described as masquerading as, the, as an angel of light. That deception is absolutely essential to his schemes. And when you boil it down and you look through, and I found it remarkable, how different commentators, even from different centuries, actually boil down this kind of lies into two ways. Temptation and accusation. Temptation being 
the obscuring of the danger of sin, the lies almost obscuring the danger of sin, accusation being the um, obscuring of God's grace, the lying and deception of trying to hide God's grace from you. Let me just give you an example of what this looks like. Um, First of all, temptation. We see this in the Bible, see this right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Um, He urges Eve to uh, eat the forbidden fruit in the garden by lying to her. He says, you will surely not die. You'll become like God. You'll be able to see the difference in good and evil. Of course, right after this, what happens? Part of God's judgment, death comes into the universe. As sin enters the garden, so death comes. It says for God's word to them, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Satan lies to her. He lies uh, to Jesus in the temptation in Matthew's gospel. Uh, he tells Jesus, if you bow down to me and worship me, then I will give you all of these kingdoms um, and their glory. Of course, they're not his to give. He's lying. And you can see this in the life of the believer. And I found this fascinating. I read a little book um, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, written by a Puritan in 1652. So it's, what, 400 years ago? What's absolutely remarkable is the the... I mean, obviously not exactly 400, you can do the maths. But, um, but the, uh, you can see the, the remarkable way that as he speaks, how much kind of you'll recognize the, the devices that he speaks about. That they're very similar. So let me give you a few examples he gives. One he gives, uh, this is temptation. Uh, presenting the bait and hiding the hook. So that's like highlighting the momentary reward from sin without with obscuring the pain that comes from it. You know that voice in your head that says, oh, this just this fantasy, indulging this fantasy. No, one, no one's hurt by this. No one's going to be suffering. Of course, what, you're not, what, that's absolute rubbish. After it, you're going to feel guilty. You're going to um, feel defeated, and perhaps even distant from God. Or presenting sin as a virtue, saying, I'm not greedy. I'm just careful with my money. Or I'm not aggressive. I'm just passionate. I've often thought that to myself. Um, I'm not a drunkard. I'm just good company. It's almost like he's hiding the true nature of sin or the lessening of sin. It's only a little thing. You know, I'm just online streaming illegally. These guys, big company, one movie, who cares? It's a very little thing or it's just a look without realizing that little sin leads to greater sin. Think about David's wandering eye as he saw Bathsheba that then ended up him committing adultery and ultimately killing Bathsheba's wife. Satan promises Bathsheba's husband. Thank you. We, we come back to same sex last week. Um, <laughs> um, Satan promises a little pleasure, but takes all of you. Or highlighting the this is in his words highlighting the rewards of men without God. What he's saying is, you know, that voice in your head that you say, actually, would my life be better off if I was like that person? They're not even following God, and they're so happy. You know, why am I doing this? Why am I making these sacrifices? When, when look over there, how happy that person is. When they have that spouse, or that job, or that wealth. Now, if you recognize those thoughts, what he's saying is it's possible that Satan is lying to you and seeking to lead you into temptation and sin. Now, it's not clear where your own sinful flesh ends and where Satan's uh, temptation begins. But in a sense, it doesn't matter. What it's saying is that Satan can use what might feel like just a, a kind of cheeky indulgence, what might feel like it's not really that wrong, it's just something that's not ideal. Actually, he's using that to pull you away from God and ultimately to lead to your destruction. It might sound a little bit um, 
like scaremongering, but I've seen this on a number of occasions over the last couple of years of people whose lives have just got swept up into different uh, patterns of sin, and they've tried to, and, and of course we've, we've called them back, and they, they've maybe gone through a process of repenting and coming back to God, but again and again they're being pulled back into that, and eventually they just give up, and they say, I can't go any, on anymore. I'm just going to give into this and walk away from Christ. And that is just such a tragedy when that happens. I've seen it happen. How Satan wants to destroy your life by pulling you into temptation and sin. Secondly, accusation then. In Revelation 21, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren. He's saying Satan is lying to believers, seeking to undermine their assurance, their confidence in God's grace, in God's forgiveness, and their identity in Christ. What does this look like? Or maybe it's that voice in your head that leads you to question your salvation. It says, if people really saw what you were like, if, you're, if people really knew what you were like, they would see in a moment that you're not really a Christian. Or persuade you that your sin is so great that it's impossible that God could ever forgive you. Or question your motivations when you're in prayer. Make you think, say to you, you don't really mean that when you're saying that. You don't really mean, mean what you're saying. Or question your suffering. I've seen this a number of times where people look at their misfortune in life, look at their, their difficult circumstances, and blame themselves. I'm not saying that sin doesn't have consequences, but they blame themselves, and they end up thinking, either I've done this to myself, I'm being blamed, I'm being punished by God, or uh, this is evidence that God uh, doesn't love me. And, and, and in, any, in all those kind of ways that, that I think Satan uses our misfortune. Or simply reminding you of your sin, that after you've confessed something, you've brought it to God, you've put it on the cross, that like Satan almost then takes it back off there and just starts like jabbing it to you and just reminding you of it. My simple rule on this is once I've confessed that to God, once I've brought that and put that on the cross, if I'm reminded of that, if I'm remembering that, I don't think that's from the Holy Spirit. Because if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And really what he's seeking to do in all of this is to destroy the church. I think as a result of both this kind of leading you into sin and condemning you and leaving you to lose your assurance, he's seeking to isolate you, seeking to lead you to a place of, of almost um, isolation, a little bit like the way a pack of lions might try and uh, wrench one buffalo from the pack. Um, my natural history is not brilliant, but you know what I mean? Like they might try and attack one, you know, if you, if you see it, some lions going to attack a whole herd of buffalo, the buffalo can, can beat them away. But if, the, if they get one buffalo, on, <laughs> the credibility here is low. Um, if they get one buffalo on their own, then they can destroy them. Again, you, there's some nodding heads. So there's some, there's some truth in what I'm saying. My point is, it's true that you are at your most vulnerable when you're isolated, when you're on your own. And I think Satan is not only looking to take your assurance away, to lead you into sin, but to isolate you from the family of God. And that's when you're most vulnerable. And actually, it's just a sadness as well when he leads you to a place where you're ending up just having to battle all these lies so you can't then be on the offensive. You can't be then focused on the things that God has called you to. When you think about that, you just think, what a tragedy. The church is meant to be an army. The church is meant to be equipped with this armor, pushing back the frontiers of evil, and instead um, they're giving in to Satan's temptations and allowing him to take ground. So then how do we fight this? What's our response? And this is Paul's central point, saying you need your armor. You need the armor of God. You need the armor of God. 
And the first point he would simply say is, you are impotent without the armor of God. He's saying you can't resist on your own. You need the resources that God provides to fight this battle of the mind. To ignore this armor is foolish. Think about a soldier running out into the battlefield without any armor, kind of naked and without even a weapon. Just think how ridiculous an idea that would be. The problem is some of you don't realize your impotence. You're trying to do the Christian life without the resources that he provides. Some of you are struggling. Some of you feel like giving up. You're asking, why is this happening to me? My question to you would be, have you taken full um, use? Have you fully embraced the resources that God has provided to you? The armor of God. And of course, the converse is true. Some of you don't believe that these weapons have power. You're very quick to write these off. If you look at the list, they just feel a bit normal and mundane. You know, uh, the gospel. You think, well, I kind of know that. Uh, or the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Yeah, reading my Bible, I know that's important. Um, or reminding yourselves of, of God's truth, this, this uh, belt of truth. Some of you are thinking, actually, what I really need in this fight is some exorcism or some kind of spiritual healing prayer. And I love spiritual healing prayer. I'm not against it at all. But my point is you're overlooking the very mundane, but actually the very um, ordinary, essential building blocks, the essential armor of God that God has provided for each believer. And he wants, to put, he wants you to put it all on. So do not overlook this kind of very normal, essential tools that God has given you. Paul is saying the very ordinary rhythms of the Christian life are essential if you are to survive the battle of the Christian life. And you know how you can tell whether you, whether you think something's important? Whether you use it. If you're, uh, you know, think of the sword of the spirit, like uh, the word of God. If your sword of the spirit, if your word of God is rusting in its belt, in your, in your belt, so to speak, I'll stop trying to make analogies, um, the... the um, then you know that you don't think it's important. If you're never opening your Bible personally, then you know that you don't think it's important for the Christian life. What I want you to do is hear loudly Paul's command to put on the whole armor of God. The word uh, for this suit of armor in Greek is panoplia. That's where we get the word panoply from in English, which simply means kind of abundance. You say the panoply of different options. What he's saying is Paul has given you an abundance of different resources to do the Christian life. He's saying, look, I've given you everything you need to fight this battle. And we're going to, next time we look at this, I'm going to go into more detail. But let me just skim over these, uh, this armor of God. Some of these weapons are defensive. They're essential for resisting the lies of the devil. Think about verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He's describing as Satan shoots his lies to you, as he just whispers that that lie in your mind, that actually you're able to to take up the shield of faith. You're able to trust God and to stop that thought in its tracks. You can choose to exercise your faith as an act of resistance, to reject and to destroy that lie. And as you do that, that lie is extinguished. The dart is extinguished on the shield. He's describing the way you can choose to trust God, because faith is literally just trusting God, and believe his promises in the face of temptations and accusations that come. I think we can see this in the area of satisfaction. 
Satan would seek to undermine your sense of satisfaction in the Christian life as a way of temptation. So you'd be much happier giving up the Christian life, not making so many sacrifices for the sake of your faith. Look at that person over there. Aren't they just really happy? Don't you just want their life? Instead, we exercise faith. That when things feel difficult, we say, no, actually, God's word is true. That when David says that your love is better than life, he's right. That he can be trusted. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What we're saying is you're trusting that God knows best. That he is the, the reason that he is the captain of your ship. The reason that he can be trusted for, to, to, uh, to lead you in life. That means that when you get that thought in your mind, you're stopping that thought in its tracks. When you start to feel jealous of other people's lifestyles, you make the decision there and then to say, no, I reject that. I trust God. You're, I think the more you kind of indulge that thought, the more you kind of chew that over in your mind, the more then you're just going to grow in dissatisfaction. But choose to exercise faith. Make that decision moment by moment, every day, to say, no, I trust you, that you are good, that your love is better than life, and that you can be trusted in all your ways. Actually, there's a similar dynamic here when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. In verse 14, stand therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And of course, this is the ultimate antidote to Satan's accusations. It's a picture of the righteousness that you have received from Christ. Actually, this armor doesn't originate in this passage. This armor is described in Isaiah 59 as God's armor. It's talking about God here when he says in Isaiah 59, he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Actually, you're not the first one to wear this armor. Actually, who's the only one who that could be true of? Who's the only human being who that could be true of? It's true of Jesus Christ, that he alone is the righteous one. So when you put on this armor, actually what you're doing is putting on Christ's armor. You know, when you go out into, I mean, if you're a, a football player and you're, and you know, you, if you play for Manchester United and you put on the number seven shirt, you say, okay, there's a legion of different incredible footballers who've worn the number seven shirt before me. That's kind of like what we're saying here, actually. There is one who is far greater than you who's worn this armor and you are taking his armor. Actually, of course, this kind of taps into the whole idea that actually, as we fight the Christian battle, There's actually one who's fighting for us. There's one who's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Actually, it's not just our battle on our own. Actually, Christ is fighting for us. He's put his spirit in us. We're not on our own here. But it also specifically speaks about the idea that you're putting on righteousness. That when Satan comes and accuses you and says, look, the way you've sinned, you're not really a Christian. Actually, what you're saying is, no, I'm not claiming to be righteous as a Christian. I've received a righteousness from the one who is truly righteous. So my righteousness is kind of unequivocally something I have in Christ, in God's sight. I have been made righteous. Whatever happens, whatever I do, whatever lies, whatever you might try and highlight from my past or my present, actually, I am righteous in Christ because of what Christ has done. It's what he says in the song, I think it's in Christ alone, but someone can correct me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. He's not saying made an end to all my sin in the sense of today you're never going to sin again. But he's saying today has made an end to all your sin in God's sight. That Christ's death is the ultimate guarantor of your righteousness. You can stand on that unequivocal truth when Satan's accusations come. You have that guaranteed if you're a Christian. But I think this this weaponry, this armor is not just defensive. It's also offensive. There's a forward motion 
a readiness that comes from wearing this armor. In verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on a readiness given by the gospel of peace. Saying that as you embrace the gospel, as you embrace this armor, you're not just responding to Satan's lies anymore. Actually, there's a forward motion, a sense that you are willing and able to be involved in the mission of God, in pushing back the evil. You know, think about as we understand the gospel, as we celebrate the gospel, that we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and been brought into God's family. Actually, when we know that Christ has died for us, it propels us outward into the world to share this message with those around us, to say, come and receive this kingdom. Come and enter into God's kingdom and come out from under Satan's dominion. So there's a gospel readiness about you, a willingness to go into the world, committed to be about God's business, seeking and saving the lost. And you need this armor for that. Actually, there's even a promise here, and this is almost where I want to end here. If you put on the armor, you will stand and be able to resist Satan's lies and temptations. You shouldn't read this passage and walk away scared of Satan. That's precisely the opposite conclusion you should take. What Paul is saying is, if you put on this armor, you will be able to stand. You will be able to continue in the Christian life. Some of you feel like giving up in the face of temptation, or will in the future. It feels too much. You're doubting your ability to endure. I think about, as a relatively new Christian, I came to London about eight, nine years ago, and I remember one Saturday night just feeling absolutely assailed by temptation and just feeling um, isolated, as I mentioned before, under attack, and just genuinely contemplating giving in. Just saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't do the Christian life. I'm just going to give up and walk away. And there may be some of you who feel the same. And Paul's message should actually encourage you that those of you who feel that faithfulness is impossible. He's saying, if you put on the armor, you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and to the sinful flesh and the temptation of the world. <coughs> His message should be one of comfort. If you're in the battle right now, if you can recognize Satan's tempting voice, or even the sense of isolation, you don't have to give up. Know that God has given you everything you need to carry on. Also, I'd highlight one more thing. Standing is success. He's not saying victory, make a victory march. He's not saying, you know, just kind of feel this incredible sense of, of victory. Actually, he's just saying you'll be able to stand. And for some of you who are in the midst of the battle... Sometimes you need to know that just by standing, just by carrying on the Christian life, just being continuing on in the midst of trials, that is a great sort cause for celebration. That's actually something that we, 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 we're grateful. I know there's a number who are really suffering in our church family at the moment. And when I look at them and I see them standing, that just gives me great comfort and great encouragement. So here are a few, then, a few conclusions as we survey this armor that Paul's encouraged us. For some of you, you need to switch on to the battle. The devil is real. You've become focused on your own life, your own plans. You've forgotten that we live in an evil wor- a world which is broken and influenced by evil. And God has called you to be part of his army in seeking and saving the lost and pushing back the darkness. And as we see people, as we see Jesus take residence in people's lives, as we see them come out of the, of the domain of darkness and into God's family. 
So to this, this evening, you may want to make a choice to recommit yourself to God's purposes, to God's mission, to sharing your life and your faith with those around you, your colleagues, your friends, your family, and being part of this mission of pushing back the frontiers of evil. Some of you need to take up the armor. You've believed in the lies that Satan has been giving you, and, and maybe you feel dissatisfied, you feel condemned, you feel defeated, And you need to hear this instruction to put on the armor of God, to know that you can stand and God has given you everything you need to fight this battle, to believe his gospel, to hold on to his truth, to immerse yourself in God's word each day, to have your mind transformed, to have your mind renewed by the, to be renew your mind. Thirdly, some of you need to hear, well done, good and faithful servant that you're standing firm under trial. You're not giving in. That Satan has thrown the kitchen sink at you and you're standing. And we want to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep standing. Don't give in now. Keep holding on to God's truth. And some of you here who aren't Christians, I want to say something which may sound a little offensive. (laughs) Forgive me. As if this message hasn't been offensive enough. Um, I think Paul would say here, there's no neutral ground. It's a stark picture. He's saying either you're following God, you're following, you're in part of God's kingdom, part of his family, or in some way you're following the prince of the air, you're following this evil one. And what he's saying is really simple, is that Satan doesn't love you. Darkness doesn't love you. Come out while you can. He doesn't want your best for you. Actually, it's funny. Jesus is not coming on a kind of battle. If you're not a Christian here, Jesus is not coming to battle you. He's not coming with weapons. He's coming on a rescue mission, an invitation to say, come and follow me. Come and experience my loving leadership. I'm the one you were made for. I'm the one you were made to follow. I was the, I'm the one you were, you were made to be in relationship with. Come and receive my Uh, My yoke, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come and follow me. There's always an opportunity to do that. There's always an offer to respond to that every every week as we meet. If that's you, we'd love to pray for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to uh, worship you this evening. We want to recognize that your name is powerful that you are the one who has destroyed Satan on the cross, that you put the uh, spiritual authorities to shame, that you have the victory, and that one day you're coming back to judge the living and the dead. But We want to say now that we are yours, that we are your people, that you've come to take up uh, occupation in our lives, that you've come by your spirit to be with us. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful good news of this armor that you've given us. This helmet of salvation that means we are yours. That we cannot be separated from your love. This breastplate of righteousness that says we are righteous in your sight. That come what may, that you've loved us and that you will continue to love us for all eternity. That we have every good gift from you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you that you will alone enable us to endure, enable us to follow you for the rest of our days. We worship you, Jesus. We give you thanks for that. We thank you for your rescue mission.
Would you help us to enjoy you this evening? Amen.